Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of the SOS Simmons on Sports radio show and podcast. And today, I have a very special guest who is a jack of all trades, to put that lightly. Um, he is a coach, an author, uh, a doctor, <laughs> and uh, has a lot of different perspectives on different things. And well, of course, I'm going to pick his brain on athletics and, and uh, uh, this COVID situation because he uh, is a pulmonary expert. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. Ron Sin. How you doing, Doc? Great, Kev. Please call me Ron. Uh, okay. Thank you, thank you so much for inviting me today. Well, good, man. I will I will not breach protocol and call you that against my friend. <laughs> um, given your varied background and history and all the things that you've done uh, involving, you know, sports and in literary terms and also other different things, um, give my, my, my listeners a, a little bit about who you are and what you've done in your career and a little bit about your background. I was born in suburban Boston to a mixed race couple. My dad was a Chinese American and my mom was Boston Irish. And I was raised in a lily white community on the North shore of Boston. Uh, my family valued education a lot and uh, they invested a lot in me and my two sisters education uh, as well as in whatever extracurricular activities that we uh, wanted to pursue. They always had a lot of books at home and reading was very big in our family and Liz. Mm. I think that there's a great saying that the difference between the person we are today and the one we are in five years uh, is the people we meet and the books we read. So I'm a reader every day. Okay. Now, I, when I hear you say that, it wasn't until I got to college. I've always been a reader, but I didn't realize uh, how voracious or how important it is to be voracious about it. Uh, playing for Coach Raveling, and a lot of people probably don't know this, but Coach Raveling has been known to read as many as five or six books at a time. We're <laughs> yeah. looking and, at him website you see that he's constantly recommending new yeah. books um, he as well as Kevin Eastman are big readers uh, Mike Neighbors at Arkansas is another big reader as well as um, Steve Kerr Popovich so I, I think people who uh, want to have different perspectives on the world seek them out yeah um, like I said it was, it's interesting because when I first met him, you know, I mean, you know, it doesn't take long to figure out that Coach Ravens a really smart guy. But what impressed me most about him, like I said, was that how well read he was. When you go into his house or his office, um, every book you could possibly imagine is sitting up on the wall, and he's read them all. Well, and, when, go ahead. Uh, when you hear that he was holding. Uh, Martin Luther King's speech on mm -hmm. Washington on Washington mm -hmm. yeah. it tells you a lot about the man I've held that in my hand <laughs> and well I mean it's a trippy feeling to you know because at first it, it's something he shows to recruits right <laughs> and it, when he first handed it to me 
I didn't know how to take it. I thought he was kidding. Or I thought that maybe he had gotten it through another source. But he explained it to me that when Dr. King stepped off the stage, was walking off the stage, he asked him for it and he handed it to him. Which is like the most random Forrest Gump, Walter Mitty type thing I've ever heard of in my entire life. To just Dr. King in that moment just walk up and say, hey man, can I have your speech? You're like, here, here, take it. <laughs> it just says, it's just weird you know what i mean yeah sure it's great that you have a connection to that great man and uh you know sports we missed it i think because it's such a distraction from society and there's so much polarization and discord and problems that we're fighting uh, as separate societies rather than trying to reach solutions together makes it well, tough Let's get into that a little bit, Doc. When we start talking about uh, the differences in terms of how uh, different leagues and different uh, uh, sport, sports are, are embracing or not embracing this entire thing with social justice. When it comes to that, when you think of this, because you were an athlete yourself, uh, I believe you walked on as a pitcher at Harvard. Am I correct? That's correct. Okay. What do you think... Or, or how do you think this is all going or where do you see this end? Well, you know, I think that from our earliest ages in first grade, maybe kindergarten, I, I never went to kindergarten. Every day we recite the uh, Pledge of Allegiance and here with liberty and justice for all. And then we refer to the Constitution and we hear that all men were created equal. Right. Well, it seems to me that the definition of all isn't exactly a dictionary definition because all with respect to Americans and also men with respect to women certainly haven't been created equal in the eyes of much of society. And I think that when I explain, you know, my feelings about, uh, you know, the social injustice issues, I try to explain to people that the perspective or how you see how America has moved along or not moved along is based purely on your own perspective and what you've experienced. And my experience is going to be different than somebody who is not black or is not a minority. And I think that where we where it gets lost in the sauce is that you don't have, is that people only want to stay from the thought process of what they see and how they perceive it as opposed to uh, actually showing empathy and listening and learning from the other person's experience. What, what do you think about that? Well, when we, we look back to the end of the Civil War, even though slavery was abolished um, and the 13th and 14th Amendments came into play, that didn't put Black families who had less access to education and no wealth and no savings on the same foot as other families. And later with Jim Crow laws and custom, it was constant uh, maintaining the status quo of inequality, which persists to some degree today. And when people talk about white privilege, they get offended. Well, as a senior in high school, 
I was very fortunate that a federal judge uh, who lived in my town took me into Harvard, took me to the dean and the admissions committee and introduced me and had some kind words to say about me. Um, all of his children had gone to Harvard, but his son in my class wanted to be a musician, not a student. So he, <laughs> he was there to, to help me network. And it's so important when you can help uh, young people network. Uh, I've been very fortunate to have a, a lot of uh, terrific students. I, I have one who's a fourth year student uh, woman at the Naval Academy. I, I wrote a recommendation recently for a woman who's applying to uh, veterinary school. And I always want to do everything I possibly can to advance them uh, into society. Because the key thing about sports is it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about us. Well, I think that the socialization aspect of sport, and I think history has proven this out to be a fact that the socialization of sports has always bleeds over into society. The When Jackie Robinson broke into the major leagues and someone like Pee Wee Reese comes over and puts his arm around him, that's an indication to people that, hey, maybe it's okay and maybe it's all going to be all right and if we can you play together, we can work together. Now, if from your perspective, do you believe that there's a connection between the two of them? Oh, absolutely. You know, we we have an opportunity uh, when you live and work with people who are different than, than you are, who have different backgrounds. Even if you want to look back into politics, after the Second World War and around the time of the Vietnam War, Democrats and Republicans in Washington lived in Washington, they worked together, they socialized together, they had the opportunity to communicate, their families met, and there was much more uh, reasonable discussion, more bipartisan decision-making. And that certainly uh, led partly to the Voting Rights Act when Lyndon Johnson uh, went to Everett Dirksen and said, after Abraham Lincoln, you'll be the person most remembered in history from Illinois. And, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know who actually is the second most after Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's indeed a leading comment, but okay. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, the, the issue is, I guess the right answer is, if somebody says, what can the average person do to make a difference? And that's not right. so easy. I mean, uh, voting is one thing. Um, and no, no matter who you support, it's it's important to go and vote so that your uh, opinion gets counted. Well, a voice is heard when you do that. And without a voice, that's not what democracy or a republic really is. So I, I totally agree with that. Where do you see, let's start with, with uh, uh, high school and college. Where do you see where the advent of sports could possibly help bridge uh, a get, the gap in terms of getting people to understand that uh, a protest or uh, uh, players linking arms or uh, somebody making a statement about social justice 
the importance of that at the high school or college level and how it's perceived uh, by the rest of the established society. Well, if I imagine um, student athletes showing some sort of gesture, um, now we, we aren't really having much in the way of fall sports out here because of uh, the pandemic. Right. Uh, football's being postponed till late winter, and as is volleyball. Um, and nobody go, not many people go to see soccer games. So, so the, there's no, there was never any national anthem played before a soccer game that I ever played in or a baseball game. So I'm, I'm not really sure where the tradition of um, the national anthem before sporting events uh, arose because we don't have it before school committee meetings or uh, <laughs> city council meetings or town hall meetings, things that have probably more impact on the community than um, children running around chasing a ball. <laughs> Let's um, hope so, at least. Yeah, one would hope. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, my, my, my thought is that a lot of people would be offended because they're associating the... Uh, the national anthem is somehow represented. I should say the first verse of the national anthem as representing uh, patriotism and support for uh, law enforcement or for, uh, support for the military. Well, the third stanza of uh, the national anthem, Star uh. Spangled Banner, talks about how the slave is miserable and will never go free. Right. So the national anthem is more than one verse. And see, I, I think that uh, the idea of what true freedom or true patriotism is gets lost when you start looking at how it's been twisted and how it's been used to uh, oppress a certain group of people while providing the opportunity or road to freedom to another. And there's a, 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 a deconstruct of what the true meaning of that is and it's left up to interpretation and a lot of times it's used in, in a way only to support the way somebody chooses to see it absolutely you know we we all see the world through our own prism and we can right. see the exact same event uh in two different ways so um if the nfl you know stencils and racism racism uh in the back of the end zone well that that really doesn't mean anything unless <laughs> they do something to um change the attitudes in society as well there's something substantive to show that their their support for it is more than just some ancillary concept that they really do actually support it like today i just you know uh, posted something on Facebook where the NFL went ahead and put a video about their commitment to social justice with two players that have basically been blackballed for supporting social justice. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you, how do you do that? How, I mean, the, the hypocrisy and that and the confusion of your message is like it, it, it destroys what you're trying to achieve. So, if, if you if you can try to encapsulate 
the way that you believe would best benefit all of us as society when it comes to how uh, colleges and professional sports address this issue? Well, we we celebrate black culture. We celebrate the black athlete. We celebrate music, but we we don't seem to be able to celebrate the black man and woman and the black family for their contributions to society. There, there was a book written years ago by, uh, I think his name, and I can't remember his name, sorry, but it was called What Went Wrong. And it, it, exam- it examined um, the Arab world. And they said, well, no wonder they have 50% of the population that's systematically excluded from education or contributing to society. Right. That's a lot of talent that gets uh, left out of the picture. It's wasted. Right, right. And and see, I, I that's one of my responses to people in terms of inclusion uh, when it comes to all of our residents in this country. The, the beauty of, or the concept of the United States of America is to get uh, to take advantage of all of everybody's talents, no matter who they are, where they where they're from, and their ability to be able to rise up through hard work in their own system. But we don't we don't offer all of those things necessary to make it so that it's an equal opportunity for every person. And that's where I think we that's where I think we lay down on the job. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. I worked with a, a black a chest surgeon, Harris Gibson, who's since retired, but he told me he was at a Chinese restaurant eating dinner with ML Carr. And people were constantly coming over, interrupting their dinner to get ML Carr's autograph. And ML Carr told him, he said, it's kind of ironic. You spend your days saving people's lives and everybody wants my autograph. <laughs> so, but Dr. Gibson talked about going up in Alabama and twice being in buildings that were firebombed as a, as a young man. He was and actually in the building when it happened? He was in the building. Wow. He was on stage playing the trumpet when he was 18 while George Wallace was making a speech. And, and he said... He said he thought George Wallace was misunderstood and that he did repent toward the end of his life uh, and that some of his principles like enforcing that women got paid uh, equal for being teachers and that black attorneys would be called Sir or Mr. Jones in court were progressive for the time. He didn't make excuses for Wallace in general, but here he's a, a highly regarded chest surgeon who had a wonderful career and he's talked about being stopped for driving while black because he had a, a Mercedes, you know, and wow, so it's a real thing. And, and you know, and, and after a while, you'd think the average person would get tired of the whole um, lack of social justice. And, and it's, it's not to try to indict every law enforcement officer. That's that's we all need good policing. We need good first responders, but we just don't need bad ones. Right. (laughs) Now, as somebody who is a longtime resident of Massachusetts and around the Boston area in particular, um, you were somebody that was a uh, witness to the Celtic dynasty. Right. 
And what I always find interesting when you and I get into discussions about uh, historic basketball history and we discuss the Celtics is how ironic it was that how the city of Boston didn't necessarily embrace the black athletes that played for the Celtics, but they embraced the Celtics. Well, that's so true. I mean, Bill Russell's experience in the next, well, couple of towns over, Reading was just horrendous. Um, and, I mean, growing up, my favorite player was Sam Jones. Okay. So, Sam was a, a great two-guard, great shooter. Uh, at, when I worked at his camp, I, you know, he must have been in his early 40s at that time. I saw him make 40 in a row from the wing off the glass. I mean, oh, he was an old, I mean, he probably could have made a hundred in a row, but he just stopped at 40. So, I mean, he was an old man. So it, it was just, and he was just such a great guy. Everybody says he's a great guy. And, he, you know, he didn't have to be nice to me. I was nobody. So, <laughs> uh, so when I was at camp, uh, they, they had a, every, I'm sure camp ever has a free throw shooting contest. So, uh, and if, if you win, you get to go up against Sam. So, you know, so they, I don't know, have a couple hundred kids and say, who wants to go first? But I pop right up immediately. I'm up, I'm going first because I figure, okay, I put up 10. No kid is going to make 10 when they have to make 10. It's a big <laughs> difference if you don't have to make 10. So I got up, made 10, and, you know, managed to lose to Sam in the runoff, not surprisingly. Wow. And like I said, I just, you, you know, when I, I've had the opportunity to meet Bill Russell. I've had the opportunity to uh, talk to him about his time in Boston. And he said, and I just recently saw an article where I read where he was saying he had to deal with getting racial cat calls at home in the garden. It's really unimaginable. There were, it was probably even worse in the early 70s when uh, with desegregation, school integration, and busing, uh, the tension got even higher. And um, everyone knows the legacy of redlining and uh, access to uh, housing being difficult throughout. You know what, Doc? I'm going to stop you there. Not everyone does understand the concept of redlining. Would you please explain to my listeners what redlining is? Okay. So, in effect, the bankers would exclude, uh, quote, undesirable. That would be mean equate to black um, <laughs> and probably Latino uh, families from getting loans to live in certain areas. So, now, when, when my family moved to my hometown in 1959, um, my dad being um, Asian American, the neighbors drew up a petition to try to prevent them from moving in. Now, wow. it was, you know, so I, so I was the race problem at the time. Um, but, you know, I was way too little to understand any implication from that. Right. My mother said the, the way to quiet any detractors over the long term is be ex- ex- exemplary in everything you do and excel. And then people will... Uh, hopefully accept you for for your success or, or right. and want to be part of it so well 
and and, and my my uh, background, childhood background, is very similar to yours because um, you know both my college, my my parents were you know went to college and both of them had professional careers, and so because of that, um, the the option it wasn't an option to go to college; it was a necessity. <laughs> right and. They didn't speak in terms of well, you know, you, well, you, maybe someday you might want to go to college. No, the issue was where you're going to go to college. Well, <laughs> and, about Bill and the Pete Carrill's story about you don't see many bankers' sons with three car garages who go to the NBA. <laughs> but you know, my my guess is that Grant Hill lived a very different childhood than right. the average NBA player. Right. He he. he he was raised in privilege and went to Yale. I mean, and for those, me. let me break in on that. Those who, for those who don't know, Grant Hill's dad was Calvin Hill, right. who was a running back with the Dallas Cowboys and also a Yale graduate. And his mother went to uh, Wellesley College and was roommates with Hillary Clinton. Oh, I did so not. So his parents were, at the very least, they were highly educated and also the kind of people that didn't fit the mold in terms of how people might perceive a young black man playing basketball in his background. So anyway, go ahead. Go ahead, Doc. So, you know, I think that I, I don't think I really experienced too many events with overt racism as a child. When I was a freshman at Harvard, my roommate from Cambridge took me to play basketball at his local gym and basically uh, his high school friends decided that they would try to kick the stuffing out of me during that wow. event. Now, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a great, by no means, was I, I was not even a league all-star kind of player, maybe fringy, but, but I was not a star player. So I wasn't trying to make any statement. I just went to play ball. And <laughs> Now, the city of Boston and and the surrounding areas have a reputation for having issues with race. Um, is that still something that is uh, part of the woven into the fabric of that area of uh, Massachusetts or Boston in particular? I think it tends to be more covert than overt. Now, when uh, we had, we were very fortunate that when my daughters were playing high school basketball, there's a program called Metco, where inner city children uh, have an option to attend school in the suburbs. I don't, I don't really know how you apply for it or how you get selected, but we had a, a young girl, uh, Shailani Petty, who. Uh, came to, to our high school when my daughters were sophomores. Now my daughters are almost six feet tall and they were terrific players. Well, Shea Petty was on the Washington Mystics NBA championship last oh, team. Wow. Year. wow. She was the A-10 uh, player of the year when she was a senior at uh, Temple. So she came and she was, you know, when the freshman comes and she's the star player, then that drives the culture and she she was a terrific kid um i'm sure and i'm sure she's a terrific young woman um but 
that certainly helped in our particular community. Um, but I remember there was a league all-star game and uh, at the game, I hear fans from the local community, which was Lexington at the time, uh, saying how she must have been at least 19 years old. If she wasn't. And that <laughs> somehow, somehow Melrose, you know, was able to spirit her out of uh, Boston onto their team. Well, uh, w- when I played high school basketball, the star player for Lexington that, that helped lead them to three consecutive state championships was Ron Lee, who... Oh, I'm okay. He went to Oregon. I played against Ron. Right. Okay, right. Terrific player. Terrific athlete. I played against him in basketball and, and soccer. And he was an NBA first-round draft choice. Try he, he could throw a soccer ball the entire length of the field. I've never seen anything like it. I mean, just a phenomenal, um, you know, young man. So, but, you know, how quickly we forget. So, so that, you know, it's, it's sort of probably like um, the, the players who, when they're the peak roses of the world, you can't stand them when they're playing against you, but then when they're on <laughs> your team, it's great. <laughs> I was just saying that about... Uh, uh... Um, Patrick Beverly, <laughs> somebody the other day. He's a guy you, 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 when you're playing against him, you want to sock him in the mouth. But as a teammate, you know, you know you want him because the guy's gonna fight like a dog to try to win a game. Yeah, I'm sure Marcus Smart's the same way. But right. my, daughters playing, <laughs> my daughters were playing on an integrated AAU team in Boston uh, when they were um, 16 years old, okay. and they w- went all the way from Boston, played down the East Coast. They played in uh, Washington, D.C., Virginia, uh, all the way down to the, at the time, it was the Milk Center at Disney World. Well, they went to a, a pancake, pancake joint in Virginia, in rural Virginia, uh, for breakfast. And the group was turned away from a largely empty restaurant. What year was this? 1996. So oh, that's, Wow. <laughs> wait, wait, correction, correction. 2000, uh, 2004, I think it was. So, so, they, you, so I want to be clear here. I want to make sure I understand what you're saying. Yeah. You're saying that in the year 2004, your daughters who were on a traveling AAU program going down and headed toward Florida was passing through Virginia and they were, and they were not allowed to eat on her interracial team, they were not allowed to eat breakfast at a particular restaurant. Right. They were denied service. And my daughters told me when they got back, they said it was straight up racism. And they said they'd never imagined anything like that before then. Did so, they, were they told that that was the reason why they weren't being served? They, they were told that their party was too big. Well, they had like 20 people. So okay. if you're a breakfast joint, you'd say like, great. 20 people. I mean, <laughs> business. So, that's probably the most you had in one group at your restaurant months, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, I don't, could I make that story up? Yeah, I guess I could make it up, but it wouldn't, it's, you know, it's, that wasn't that long ago. So, right. you know, and, and if you watch Twitter every day or the news, you, you just see unspeakable horrors that happen day after day. Yeah. Uh, st- strictly because 
somebody happens to be African American or, or Latino. So, well, and it's interesting too because you know uh, we're you and I are in the chat group uh, chat room uh, Herb on Hoops and we talk to basketball coaches throughout the country, some from the South, some from the East Coast, West Coast, all over. Um, and one of the things that always strikes me funny is that there's so many different perspectives on race, on social justice, on, uh, you know, the uh, issues of Colin Kaepernick or kneeling. But it never ceases to amaze me how these guys who are all coaches don't have a problem coaching black talent. But they might have a problem with so with black culture or black people in general and I'm confused as to how that always seems to get pushed to the wayside when people start talking about the interaction between kids and coaches you know what I mean yeah oh absolutely it's it's really hard to separate how you coach your team how you interact with kids and how you live your life just the same way I, I remember I, I haven't been harsh with kids very often but I remember I was coaching a group and they just got totally pushed around physically by the other team and never responded I don't I don't mean fighting I mean they didn't you know set good screens they didn't fight for rebounds they just lay down like dogs okay. and, I, and afterwards I told them you know how you play it reflects how you live and it's unacceptable for you to put that sort of effort out there because it says something about you as people right and six months later some girl came up to me and said oh that stuff about how you play is how you live your life really got to me <laughs> so well they actually it, listen it's a dichotomy of who of you know what you become or what you're gonna be so all you're doing is pointing that out to them and letting them know that this is the road you're headed down. If you don't want to go that way, I suggest you turn around. <laughs> yeah, right. And I mean, whether 13 or 14 year old girls win or lose a basketball game, it's, you know, there's, right. there's, no, there's no line on it in Vegas. Right. God forbid. Um, you know, and what, what you hope is that at the end of their experience, that they develop some kind of feeling for the game that they care about their teammates and they're making some positive memories that they can look back on fondly. Right, right. Now, we're going to switch gears a little bit here and talk about uh, your professional experience and I'm going to pick your brain a little bit about how uh, sports is going to is dealing with this situation with COVID. Well, I think the NBA presumably the NHL have, have done a, a masterful job in keeping the cases um, free or keeping their environments free of COVID cases, which would say something about society that if you test, if you uh, have more responsible behavior with wearing masks, keeping social distancing, washing your hands, that you can do better than we've done. Right. I, I would have guessed that the NBA would have had 20% chance of getting through the playoffs uh, without a problem. It sure looks like they're going to get through it uh, without a problem. Uh, you know, not 100% guaranteed, but they've done a lot better than baseball has, of course. <laughs> but, of course, baseball has 
so many more uh, moving parts, I guess, with, with yeah. your players. Yeah, outside, outside contact and, and uh, vulnerabilities. But when, yeah. you t- when, when you talk about the NBA in the bubble, and you talk about the, the, the virus itself and how it manifests itself with society, when they, when they first announced that they were going to try to do this concept, did you see or did you believe there would be certain problems and which ones that you feel might have happened and which ones that you thought would happen didn't happen? Well, I thought that they'd have trouble keeping players in line, keeping them restricted to campus, keeping uh, Disney employees away. At first, I thought that the Disney employees were not going to be tested, but obviously... I don't know. I don't think they have any union down there, but they, they probably sweetened the pot somewhat for them and said, look, we're going to pay you X amount uh, to get tested. Getting a test is, is not that big a deal. I had a test uh, yesterday. Oh, okay. You know, so uh, I didn't feel well at all on Sunday, and I was hoping that I didn't have uh, the virus. I don't have the result back yet, but I've been in quarantine in the last two days. Okay, uh, sorry to hear that, Doc. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling okay. So, but the fact that 40 or 45 percent of people are asymptomatic, it's so easy to come in contact with the person you least expect to have the illness could have the illness because they have no symptoms or findings. Right. That make, that make them sick, and uh, it, it could be children, it could be, could be your healthcare worker. So I, I'm surprised that they haven't mandated. Um, healthcare workers get regular testing, but it probably has a lot to do more with the availability of the testing than than the, the utility of the testing. Well, uh, in terms of its spread and its virulence, um, how would you say? How, how would you or how would you explain uh, to to anybody, the average person out there, just how easy it is to get infected by this virus? Well, we know that in roughly the last six months that over six million Americans have had documented illness and nobody's really sure what the the relative percentage of uh, diagnosed cases to undiagnosed cases are. We know on community surveys in from New York and in suburb, suburban areas, even some of the suburban Boston areas, some of the communities have had 30% of the people uh, tested uh, turn up positive uh, randomly. Went back in, in uh, late February, early March in New York City, when all pregnant women were tested before labor, 14% of them were positive. So there's a high prevalence of the disease out there. And people are saying, well, if it's so bad, why aren't more people dying? Well, more of the people who are getting infected now are younger, healthier people right. who are not the, the high risk. Whereas, uh, I, don't know, I don't know about you, but I, I'm a senior citizen. So, uh, <laughs> so I guess that makes me at higher risk, even though I'm otherwise, in, uh, I think, in a lower risk group. But the chance of dying from the illness if you're over 60 is something like 15 times higher than if you're under 60. Wow. I didn't know it was that high. I didn't yeah. know that. But, wow. you know, it's, it's always about cherry picking the data. But when people say, well, it's, it's about my individual freedoms, well, I, I think it really isn't because 
when you when your freedom encroaches on somebody else's health and safety, I don't know that they, that makes you as free as you think. Right. <laughs> because one of my arguments is is that when somebody goes into a private business and it says that they don't have to wear a mask because they don't believe in it, they don't think that they should be forced to do so. My question is those are the same people who every time they've been to a restaurant in their entire lives saw the picture in the window that said no shoes, no shirt, no service. Absolutely. <laughs> so why why was that okay then if this not okay now? <laughs> well, and, I mean, go to an amusement park and it says, you know, if you're not this tall, you can't ride the ride. Right. You know, you can't ride the ride. That's <laughs> It's like, oh, okay, well, it's against my constitutional right for me not to be tall enough to ride this ride. <laughs> exactly. So. so I don't I don't quite get that 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 concept. Now, when it comes to the NFL, or because uh, now we've seen uh, you know, the NHL, the NBA, and Major League Baseball. Who has had, I would say, at best, a fair to middling, done a fair to middling job uh, on corralling this situation. Uh, with the NFL, how do, do, do you see any potential uh, issues that they might encounter due to the way that the game itself is played and how it manifests itself amongst the players, officials? and people who make that game actually run. Right. This, well, I think the issue is not so much the, the players on the field. I think it's going to be the travel experience getting from, you know, let's say, the team facility to the airport uh -huh. and whoever you come along, come in contact with on the way. Now, I don't know, is, is every pilot, stewardess, uh, baggage handler, um, meal service personnel—is everyone being tested? I, I, I don't, I don't know. You know, so, and plus, when you you get to these cities, like the the Patriots play in Seattle on Sunday, they they leave Friday. So, are they going to be uh, locked up in their rooms uh, right. for a couple days? Maybe <laughs> Belichick, it's possible. Uh, but I think that it's obviously it's a business and it's in the employee's interest to um, adhere to the whatever regulations they put well, out. And, 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 and I, I understand that perspective because, see, I've, I thought from when this all started, the most difficult sport that was going to have a problem with all this was going to be football at the college or professional level, more so college. Because uh, I hate to be the one that uses the terminology boys will be boys, but it's already happened. I know at Rutgers, they had a situation where they had half their football team go to a party and then 44 people test positive. Right. I think Tennessee had to cancel a, a scrimmage <laughs> because they had over half the players positive. So... In an effort to maintain control over it in terms of an environment where you've got athletes, what things would you recommend for somebody to use or what things do you think 
would uh, it'd be a step in the right direction for controlling the environment of some 50, 60, 70 guys, coaches, and personnel? Well, the most radical approach would be to pay the players. <laughs> but, but that that would be un-American. Uh, <laughs> so, but when it know. comes to like, uh, can you think of any aesthetic things or, or or things that you know could make a difference just in making sure that it can't happen? Like uh, making sure locker rooms are sanitized. Uh, I saw on watching the HBO. Uh, uh, sports special where they show preseason football with, you know they had the Rams and Chargers on I saw a guy actually uh, using a solution to sanitize the ball well <laughs> and I had that had crossed my mind at all As I saw this Twitter video of two guys boxing and the guy would punch the guy and then they'd have Purell's hand because <laughs> <laughs> obviously it was uh, it was weird because my sister and myself were watching that HBO special and we saw the guy cleaning the balls and I just kind of looked at her and I thought wow I hadn't really thought about that if with over the course of the day I don't know how many footballs that get used like in preseason camp or anything like that but Part of the game is to have different people touching the ball. Right. And there was a, I mean, I, I have at least one player who's played um, off-season basketball out of state. Um, I've, the referees have masks. The referees have uh, electronic whistles that they hold in their hands and they push a button and it makes a, a you know, a sound so that they know that the, uh, the call has been made. Stop uh, playing. So, right. <laughs> the, the, the fans have to wear uh, masks. And, you know, I, I don't know if there have been any problems or not. You know, the, the, the young woman who's playing is a terrific young player. And I, I think she's going to be a D1 player someday. Oh, okay. Uh, what, know, you're coaching her right now, presently? Well, I, I just... She just started high school uh, last week. Oh, okay. I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, but anyway, I have a player who's a junior right now in high school. Uh, excuse me, in college. What am I saying? She's a junior in uh, a prep school right now. She, had to re- <laughs> she repeated a year. But she's got four D1 offers. Um, oh, wow. Right now, including uh, um, George Washington, where the UConn player Jen Rosati is coaching she's a highly regarded coach yes she is in fact she's out here at Stanford I'll, yeah. I'll buy where I am and and uh this young woman that I coached is ahead of where this other girl was at the time a different player cool. but you know we'll we'll see what happens that's so, quite a statement yeah, now say, if, you're, if you if you become a player it's not because of me it's because of you right uh, <laughs> you know, so, uh, now in the future, where do you see this situation going as far as the virus for the future? Do you see um, us or the virus itself as something that's going to be something that we're going to have to deal with for years to come? Yes, I think or we'll get the sort of like the flu. If 
if there's enough people that are develop some sort of immunity plus the augmentation of a reasonably accepted vaccine with some effectiveness so right now i think probably 50% of people wouldn't agree to take the vaccine if they had the world's most effect, effective vaccine available unfortunately you're right <laughs> and vaccines you have vaccines like measles that are extremely effective in the 90 plus percent range and vaccines like influenza vaccine that are less than 50% effective so you know my guess is that any covid va- uh, vaccine is probably going to be more like a flu va- flu vaccine than measles so i think that we're going to have to come to some sort of grips with this is going to be out there hopefully there'll be better treatment available which there is better treatment now than than there was before uh, in our practice we've had 35 patients test positive 10 hospitalized wow uh, 3 deaths and uh, i believe one person uh, is still critically ill so uh, in another hospital so you know it, when pe- when people you hear these interviews and people say this is a hoax this is a conspiracy they're they're just misinformed and um their choice to be misinformed is is part of their ethos now when when you hear things like you know in, in association with sports that younger athletes have less to fear of this virus or that because of their health and their youth that they have less to fear i think of the poor kid that was pitching for boston um uh, explain to uh my audience what the dangers are of how this can affect an athlete in terms of stuff like myocarditis or anything else of that nature right we we know from a german study of hospitalized patients where the average age of the patient was 49 year old 49 years old and they did mris of the heart that 78% of people uh who were that sick had heart involvement and the heart to pump can be affected by damaging the the force of the pump or the electrical action action of the wow. pump so it can show up with fatigue shortness of breath uh or um rhythm disturbance where people can have arrhythmias and rarely sudden death that's what they <laughs> that's the most feared complication of myocarditis now wow. presumably with younger patients there there's going to be a lower frequency of that happening but we heard from the the big 10 that 30 to 35% of their athletes were getting myocarditis yep so that's a, that's a substantial number so let's say you're Justin Fields in Ohio State right and you're going to get 50 million dollars from the NFL to be one of the top few draft choices well if yep. you get myocarditis and you're not draftable what are you going to do are you going to say gee that was pretty bad luck on my part or are you going to sue the the Big 10 and Ohio State and get triple damages and it's you know 150 million dollars well pretty soon your football program doesn't look so viable or <laughs> revenue generating now i'm not i'm not saying that's going to happen but i'm not saying it couldn't happen right and see i i that's the same perspective i look at it as because now explain this to me i want to be sure that that i get this clear as well 
Is myocarditis something that is a permanent condition, a temporary condition, one that you will improve from? Explain to me how that works. With with other viruses, you can have permanent scarring of the heart. Um, well, as I mentioned the other day in, on Herb on Hoops, Hank Gathers had um, scarring in his heart with my myocarditis as a possible cause of that. They never isolated the virus to say that he had adenovirus or some other kind of virus that was the cause. Now, we don't know. Now, people can resolve and live a normal life, but what if you have 10% or even 5% damage heart? If you're you're Jesse Owens, 5% off your, your being makes you not Jesse Owens anymore. Right. So, and, and so is that an inherent risk that athletes are just going to have to accept and deal with as they move forward as in terms of this virus? And will the virus or could the virus possibly mutate in some way and take other forms that may end up causing the same situation or perhaps were other worse things in the important organs? Right. I mean, the viruses can change so that they become more severe over time or less severe but but usually they usually the reason a a strain of a virus uh, mutates it mutates to something that's more effective from the virus standpoint you know if if it's if it were less infectious or caused less um less of a problem there's no evolutionary benefit to the virus to do that well, as my uh, uh, teacher told me in college, um, the virus is fighting to live just like we are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's going to do what it has to do to try to survive, which means it will adapt to certain situations to try to continue to exist. So yeah. the concern in my, in, in, for me is that it, as we move forward and deal with uh, sports in general if you're a parent and you're bringing a kid up and he's an athlete and wants to play will there ever be an environment that will be conducive or safe to have this you know your your kid compete in it without you having to make sure that the, the, the coast is clear so to speak well 50% of adults have high blood pressure. 50% of adults are obese. A third have diabetes or pre-diabetes. In a study of 15 to 34-year-olds who had traumatic deaths and autopsies, 100% of them had early findings for atherosclerosis, hardening of the arteries. So if you say, who's completely healthy? It's almost nobody. So you could, you could bring the virus into an environment where a, quote, susceptible person is is out there and th- so I, growing up if i had been 17 years old and spread a virus to a grandparent who right. severely illness or died oh, i can't imagine how that would have kind yeah. of <laughs> set with the family going forward well I, i'm a bit of a workout warrior and i haven't been in three months because uh you know i, I take care of my mom and yeah. uh, she's 82 years of age. She's diabetic. Um, it's not a conducive. And I have to, I, I've been literally planning and plotting out how 
to be able to go back to working out on a regular basis and do it in a safe way. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, no, I mean, for example, I have a sister who has done yoga daily for years and now she does Zoom yoga. Um, So um, I imagine a lot of home, well, Peloton, those Peloton systems uh, have right. remarkably well. So obviously people are looking for alternatives uh, to get the exercise that they uh, want and find so beneficial. So from a purely uh, athletic supporter perspective, um, you believe that this is going to be something that we are going to deal with in the future and possibly from now on. Yeah, I would say indefinitely. So I, I don't have any, you know, that's that's part of people's frustration. They have quarantine fatigue. They're, they're tired of having to distance, tired of wearing masks, and they're pushing back against it. Well, um, if you look at uh, a state like Utah, uh, where there was a, a big report of people having an anti-mask demonstration, well, Utah is having a mini epidemic right now. So oh, you choose your poison. You can wear a mask and say you can't breathe um, or you can get COVID. And if, if a person finds it distasteful or unsatisfactory to wear a mask, they're not going to like the ICU. <laughs> so it's one you may not like the mask, but you're really not going to like the ventilator. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I don't want anyone to become ill but you know as um david thorpe says if your if your child goes in to have their appendix taken out do you tell the doctors and, and nurses well don't worry about wearing gloves or don't worry about wearing masks I, i'm sure they're not going to get infected well of, of course you quite just tell them to wear a mask and gloves you know and now as a, as a doctor or a nurse, you understand that with the job, there's inherent risks. Right. If you're a school teacher, you didn't you didn't buy that as part of your uh, sign-on. Well, my last question to you is going to be: If you, as a coach, and somebody who coaches AAU, uh, and somebody who has coached uh, at the high school level, um, how uh, what changes? have you made that are probably going to end up being permanent that you're going to have to do that you're going to have to make to uh, work with your kids in the safest way possible during this uh, pandemic? Right. I, I, I'm really interested to see how sports work going forward. Yeah. I have, I, I'm curious as well. You know, um, as of this time, I haven't made a commitment to coach or not coach. Although I, I'm pretty sure that any decision that I would make would have to be a family decision. And uh, at least right now, I think the family decision would be that I shouldn't, I shouldn't coach right. uh, because of my age more right. than anything else. Um, but certainly, you know, for example, in, in Massachusetts, they, they put out volleyball rules. So volleyball is a less contact sport than basketball. Right. And during team meetings, everyone has to be at least six feet apart. Well, there's not going to be a lot of strategy with the coach yelling to kids who are 20 feet away. You know, um, and, and the players are going to have to wear masks. I don't know. 
I mean, it's, it's not like you can sanitize the ball after every right. point. And, right. And, um, now, I believe in October, Abbott Laboratories is coming out with a home. Basically, it's going to be a home COVID test. So you can, you'll be able to collect saliva onto a pregnancy test like uh, apparatus and uh-huh. it's be positive or negative and it's supposed to cost um, five five dollars so oh wow okay so you know I think that now obviously for family with four or five people I'm not saying everybody has to get tested every day but you could probably def- decide some kind of regular basis uh, you know once a week which probably isn't enough but um, hopefully or it might even get funded through the community I, I could see you know there's some kind of tiny sales tax so that everybody gets issued these tests right so, um, but, but I think that's realistic I think without progressive testing as well as public health measures it's going to be hard to, for sports to really work um, you know because we, we're not putting high school or middle school kids into a bubble nor should right. we <laughs> no that's not gonna fly <laughs> you know but obviously we we do want the kids to be able to enjoy sports we do want them to be able to uh, get education uh, in person and to have the socialization experience that uh, children benefit from right well doc that flew by that, it, it really it really did Kevin and it flew by I'm looking at it right now and I'm like wow that was a, the quickest 60 minutes I've had in a while um, well, I thank you man I really do for providing uh, information that a lot of people really needed to hear and to explain it in a way that was uh, you know really conducive to helping people understand how to best deal with this and look at things from a uh, a perspective of safety and how it can be done practically. I appreciate that very much. Well, I thank you so much for inviting me and I hope your uh, listeners get some benefit from listening. Well, thanks, my man. I really appreciate it. And folks, um, that was uh, Dr. Bronson and he uh, is a pulmonary uh, cardiologist. No, just pulmonary critical care, but I, I'm now I'm plain old primary care doctor. Okay, primary care doctor, but he has experience in pulmonary. Uh, he has pulmonary experience as a doctor, and uh, we appreciate this. The SOS Simmons on Sports uh, broadcast appreciates having him on and helping explain some of these things uh, to help you make better decisions in terms of your children. Doc, thanks a lot, and uh, to my listeners, thank you for listening, and have a great day.